0: There we go, I'm on. So Laura always says to me um, that uh, our marriage would be a lot smoother if my communication was better. I've always pushed back and go, no, I can think of a few other reasons why our marriage isn't smoother. And um, this morning it was yet again. And as we've come together as two congregations, I've realized that my communication is bad. Um, you read an entire extra section to the text there that we're not going to touch. And it's just purely because I didn't communicate to anyone that I'd lopped it off this Sunday. So <laughs> Laura's right. I'm wrong. And I'm learning things about myself as we come together. And um, it really is lovely to come together. I love Ellen saying, You're going to see more of me. Um, yeah, you are too late for one. You're going to see more of me if that's a problem. I'm sorry. This it's lovely. I see um, the Pullins and the bodels here in the front row um, and all the normal things that we're used to in Bosch PM, like Bodel kneeling during worship and doing th- all of us doing strange things. It's great to see you guys here. And again, they're here to stay. So, sorry, you let us through the door and now we're here. And it's lovely. It really does feel amazing to arrive on a Sunday morning and not feel like a distant cousin, but actually a part of the family and a member of the household in this, this place. And it's growing um, warmth and affection in my heart towards this Um, morning meeting and just experiencing more and more each week that we live in the fullness of this, the reality of family and community in so many ways. I'm getting to know Louise and Alan so much better. I work next to Louise and she's a machine and it's just amazing and such a gift. So it really is good to be here and loving what we're experiencing and what God is doing in this community. Now we are in the the book of Mark. We had uh, Ryan kick us off last week And um, it's amazing that as Jesus has made it crystal clear who he is and why he's here, there's a turning point in the book of Mark where Jesus goes, I am here to die. That's my mission. I'm here to die, and I'm going to achieve some things through my death that's going to make it possible for humanity to be restored to God, for the hearts to be softened, and for people to encounter me in a very real way. And from that moment in this book, Jesus is teaching to become a little less cryptic, a little less Um, uh, use of parables, and he's starting to get clearer and clearer as he moves towards the cross. And we see last week when Jesus is with his disciples in that room, he becomes crystal clear about the dangers of sin and how choosing sin is a choice towards death and not a choice towards life. And before that, when he's teaching the disciples, he speaks speaks to them clearly about greatness if you remember, that's where we left off the series before jumping into a home series, just speaking in that same room about what does it mean to truly be great. And Jesus is kind of going, now, now that the mission is close and the cross is close and it's become clear why I'm here, I'm just going to keep getting clearer and clearer and clearer in my teachings. And so Jesus leaves that room and he, he heads off. Now, you've heard the text read this morning. You might think that this text is about marriage and divorce. And if you're not in that stage of life of marriage or, or, or not choosing to, or wanting to be married or once you were married and, and or you long for marriage, wherever you are, you might be tempted. I'm not in that space, so therefore, I'm going to dial out in this moment. And I would really encourage you not to dial out. Because this idea of marriage or this concept of marriage and divorce is just a tool being used by the Pharisees in this moment. And as they try to trip up and trick Jesus, we're going to see that it actually this text has so much more to do about the condition of our heart. And Jesus is going to use this moment to reveal to the whole crowd in front of him and these Pharisees coming towards him the condition of their heart. And that there is a condition of heart that is incredibly dangerous. And it is so dangerous because this condition of heart can damage massively our relationship between us and God and our relationship with each other. And so as they try to catch Jesus out with this theological question, Jesus turns it around to become a mirror to reveal the condition of our hearts. And so no matter who we are, no matter where we find ourselves in terms of marriage, this text is for us this morning. I think Jesus is going to use it to turn a mirror into our hearts so that we can see a bit of ourselves and what's going on inside and hopefully avoid the, the dangerous heart condition that he's going to expose. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into unpacking our text. And we're going to unpack it in a few ways. We're going to be just looking at what is the condition of our hearts? Are we seeking the fullness of God? And are we resting in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we do come to you humbly, asking that you would, in your your most loving and kind and gentle way, just turn um, that mirror onto our hearts in such a way that we can see what's truly going on in our hearts. And we know, Jesus, that you never do that to condemn. You never do that to belittle. You never do that to shame. But you do that to reveal things in our hearts that might need to change. You might bring conviction, but it's always towards life and experiencing the fullness that you have for us. So, Father, I pray that those of us who have arrived here less full than we could be in you would leave here with greater fullness and joy and experience of your presence in our lives. Would you do that for us, we pray this morning. Amen. Okay, so before we get to those points, we just need a bit of context. So verse 1 says this, And he left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. So you have Jesus moving out of that quiet, intimate space with his disciples where he's been teaching them. And now he's back on the road heading towards Jerusalem. This is a significant moment. He's crossed over the Jordan. If you, in in um, the people of God, when they crossed over the Jordan, that was the moment that they felt like they'd walked, stepped into the promised land of God. And so you have Jesus stepping over the Jordan. He's here. He's getting closer to the cross. Significant moment in his journey towards the cross. And as he crosses and what has become so normal is Jesus. Jesus moves around and moves towards Jerusalem is that people would gather to him, that there was something about the person of Jesus that just drew the crowds. People wanted to hear what he had to say. They wanted to experience him. There was something about him that just drew people to him. And Jesus did what he always did. As it says here, as was custom, he taught them. And Jesus was was teaching the people um, that would gather in front of him out of a deep love, care, empathy, kindness, and compassion for them. He saw how the, the religious leaders and Pharisees of the time so often missed what the Old Testament was pointing to, namely himself. So, Jesus was teaching the crowds constantly about who he is, why he was here, what he was about. He was helping people understand what the Old Testament was pointing to, what it was saying, and what it meant. He was expressing what the kingdom of God would be like and what it meant to live in the kingdom of God and what changes would take place in our hearts and our affections if we found ourselves in the kingdom of God. And these were the things that Jesus would teach and, and teach people about and teach the crowds about. And so, this is probably the things he was talking about, especially as he heads towards the cross. Why am I heading towards a cross? What is the purpose of me being here? And let me make, um, let me help you make sense of that in light of the scriptures. And so Jesus is doing this, and and as he does this, what happens is the Pharisees come up to him and they try and undermine this teaching. They try and cause Jesus to stumble in his teaching, and they come with the theological question: Can we get divorced? can we get divorced is the simplicity of their question. Verse 2. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they come with this question. And it's quite jarring. So you've got this crowd of people. You don't know where they are in their stages of life. You don't know what they've experienced in terms of marriage and divorce and, and remarriage. You don't know where people are at. And these are leaders who should have a care and a concern and a love for the people. And they should be listening to the words of Jesus and being amazed at his compassion and his tenderness and his kindness. And actually they come to jesus with their agenda they don't like jesus he undermines their authority he undermines their influence he undermines their understandings and interpretations of the law and they they really just have their own agenda and so jesus is doing this compassionate teaching about the kingdom of heaven and these guys these leaders who should care about the people just step in and go jesus we've got a question for you about divorce probably quite jarring and disconnected from what jesus was teaching in the moment And their whole heart and their whole agenda is to undermine Jesus. They know that this is a dividing question. They know that some people would say divorce never. And some people would say divorce whenever you feel like it. And there would be a spectrum of interpretations of the law. And they're like, we're going to get Jesus. Because now with this question, he's going to have to nail his colors to the mast. And as he does that, he's going to lose half this crowd. He's going to lose half the teachers and scribes because they're going to disagree with him. And we're going to have a great big theological fight on our hands. And it's going to fall apart for Jesus. We're going to undermine the momentum his teaching and Jesus is masterful in what he does because they've turned the tension onto him and put the question on Jesus and Jesus just simply asks them a question back verse three and he answers them what did Moses command you such a powerful moment that that Jesus does here because what he does is he takes he says don't look at me don't look at these leaders and don't look at the crowd what I want us to do is I want us to look to the scriptures I want us to look to the Word of God. And he goes, you all, We all agree that that's where the authority is. We all agree, and no one's going to disagree with me here. The crowd, the Pharisees, and myself. None of us disagree that the authority lies with the Scriptures. So what do they have to say on this? And so he turns their question into a question and says, Well, what does Moses say about that? What did Moses command you? And then they turn, they choose to go to a verse in Deuteronomy 24, and they paraphrase, paraphrase that verse into quite a harsh and. And a sentence which says this, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Cold, callous paraphrase of um, chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. And in this moment, as they choose to go to that text and they choose to paraphrase it in that way, Jesus starts to get a, a bit of an insight into their hearts and what's actually going on here. So what is this certificate of divorce? So, what would happen is Moses actually set up a process by which he didn't want divorce to become an easy thing. He didn't want divorce to be done for any reason. So he sets up this process, a certificate of divorce, saying we're going to account for divorces and the reasons for which you get divorced. So there's this process of accounting for them, which is meant to be a limiting factor, not an escalating factor. And then on top of that, in, in the culture that they were in, Women woman needed to be protected after a divorce, and this certificate of divorce would protect them. Because what could happen is a woman could be um, uh, divorced from the first husband, go off and marry a second husband, and at each point get a dowry. And then at the point that that second husband dies, that wealth and the dowry and everything that happened there, this husband could go, No, but I'm your husband, you're married to me, and lay claim to it. And the certificate of divorce, you go, No, here's my proof that you divorced me you have no claim to this inheritance of mine over here. And so there's this this reality of it being a tool of protecting, and in this case, specifically, women. So that's the heart behind Moses and the institution of this, this regulation or this process of certificates of divorce. And in this moment, these Pharisees, when asked, well, what do the Scriptures have to say about this, choose to go to Deuteronomy 24, this loophole. And so much... Is revealed about their hearts in this moment and the condition of their hearts. So much so that Jesus just calls them on it. Verse 5 And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of hearts, he wrote you this commandment. Because of your hardness of hearts, he wrote you this commandment. And he's simply asking, How hard is your heart? How hard is your heart that this is where you would go and this is what you would choose to engage with when it comes to this question? And it's amazing because what he does is he includes them and he shows how the scriptures apply to every generation. He doesn't say their hearts were hard, that's why Moses back then wrote that. He said your hearts are hard. Your hearts are hard. That's why he wrote it back then. And there was an anticipation that the scriptures would talk to every heart through every generation. And Jesus calls them and says your hearts are hard. And he's, this is a big expansive claim, not just on this thing, but your hearts are just generally hard, and we're seeing the hardness of your hearts come through, and the way that you're attacking me, and the way in which you're choosing to interpret these scriptures. And really, there are two ways in which their hearts are being revealed. To, their hearts are being revealed to be hard. It was not such a tongue twister when I was reading it this morning. Hearts to be hard. Um, and the first one is that they're, they're heart, their hearts are hard because of their own agenda. They're not about the agenda of God. They're, they're pretending to be about the agendas of God, but actually their hearts are about their own agenda, their own power, their own influence, their own wants, desires, and what they want to achieve with their lives and what they want to gain from life. That's what's going on. It's their agenda. That's how they can come with such a random question, cutting across the teaching of Jesus and trying to trip him up. This moment is deeply ironic if Jesus is who he says he is, God with us, that he stepped out of um, heaven, humbles himself to be amongst us, in this moment what you see is the teachers of God's law using the word of God against the work of God. They're literally speaking to God and going, we're going to use your words to undermine the work that you're about right now in this moment. That's how hard their heart is. And that's how set they are on their own agenda. That the very leaders who should know who Jesus is and understand who he is and understand the connection from the scriptures to him and everything that he's claiming and everything he's saying, they should see it. They don't see it because their hearts are hard. And their hearts are are hard. Their hearts are hard. Because they're about their own agenda, not about the purposes of God. And so that's the first way in which we see that their hearts are hard. The second way is that they have this legalistic loophole faith. This legalistic loophole faith. You see, when asked about marriage, when asked about what Moses says, when asked about what the scriptures say, where is the very first place that they jump to? The loophole. They jump to the loophole text. They jump to Deuteronomy 24. But Moses wrote Genesis. And in Genesis, Moses writes about the, God's purposes and plans and intent in creating marriage. Right there, you see God's blueprint on why he's made marriage and what marriage is meant to be. And instead of going to where Moses writes about God's intent and purposes for marriage, they go to the loophole of how they get out of marriage. And there's this loophole legalistic faith. Where it's not a deep affection and love for God that goes, God, I will be obedient and I will follow you and I will do what you call me to. No, because I believe it to be good. I believe it to be true. That's not their heart. Their heart is, I want to know the rules. I want to know what I'm meant to do so that I can say that I'm right with God. But I want to apply those rules on my terms and in the way I want to do it, and when a rule doesn't suit me, I'm going to look really hard for the loophole so that I can go, yeah, 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 I know, I know, but because of this, I don't have to. Yeah, yeah, I know over here, but because of this, I don't have to. And so their hearts are full of legalism and a loophole faith. And this hard-heartedness is a deeply dangerous place to be. Loophole Christianity is a dangerous faith and game to play because it gives you a sense of being right with God when you're actually far from God and in some cases in opposition to God. As a pastor, I have people come to me often and they say, how is it that such atrocities have been done in the name of God using the words of God? I'll say, because of hard-hearted people. Nazi Germany, apartheid, the words of God used to justify acts that God himself would never justify. And here you see hard-hearted Pharisees trying to use the words of God to undermine the very mission of God to go to a cross. It's not the words of God, it's not the person of Jesus, but it's the hard hearts of people that allow the words of God to be used in ways that they were never meant to be used. It's like a hammer. A hammer is a tool built to drive in nails so that you can make things of life, houses and furniture and things that are useful and life-giving. But a hammer can be misused to bring death as a weapon. But that was not its design and that was not its intent. The second thing about hard-heartedness and this, this idea of loophole faith is that you're just trying to do what enough so that you're not in trouble, so that you can cross every T and dot every I. And so you go on holiday with a bunch of friends, or you're in digs with some friends, or you're married and you've got a spouse, And what happens is they go to you, they come to you, they go, oh, I've cooked dinner, it's been busy, I've worked really hard in the kitchen. Would you just mind unpacking the dishwasher? And you're like, cool, there's the law. Unpack the dishwasher. So you go, you take it, you open it up, and you start shoving plates in that cupboard, and you're not sure where these spoons go, so they end up on the counter there, and everything kind of ends up in a place. And then your spouse walks in, and they look, and they go, "Um, the kitchen's a mess. I thought I asked you to unpack the dishwasher. And you're like, well, look, it's empty. Look, it's unpacked. It's clean. I did what you asked me to do. The dishwasher is clean. It's empty. That's legalistic loophole faith. The heart is, please, would you serve me in this moment and wholeheartedly empty this dishwasher and make the kitchen usable again? But a legalistic loophole faith just goes, the dishwasher is empty. And that's what these Pharisees are about. The dishwasher is empty. How do you know if you're slipping into legalism in your heart? One of the big signs is reputation management. You don't actually care about your sin grieving God. What you care about is that your reputation will get damaged if people catch you out for sinning or breaking the rules. Reputation management is a huge sign of legalism going in your heart. Where you care more about what people think about you than you do actually care about people where you care about, less about God's design for things and His heart in things and more about just not being in trouble with Him. This is a big one, where you care more about other people's sin while you're completely blind to the own sin in your life. As Christ follows where we go, I no longer, suchly go, I no longer need grace, but look at all these people who need grace. I've somehow arrived at the full extent of my need for God's grace in my life. But man, that is ugly. Look at those people over there and what they do. That's legalism. A loophole obedience rather than a joy, deep gratitude obedience. So a loophole obedience to God rather than one that is motivated by a deep sense of joy and love for God. And then this one I find in my life and in the lives of others as I pass them. You're just tired at its soul level. It's like no amount of rest helps you not be tired. No amount of sleep seems to fix the problem. You are just tired at the deepest level. It's a good sign of legalism in your life because trying to manage your own reputation, trying to manage a self-righteousness that lets you feel that you are worthy of God is exhausting. When the hum of your life is grumpy, irritable, and angry, your heart has probably got a bit hard and legalistic in its faith, rather than a heart full of rest and joy. And so Jesus, what he does in this moment is he, he diagnoses their heart and he goes, because of your hardness of heart, Moses instituted this process and this regulation. And because of your hardness of heart, we're actually having this conversation right now. And Jesus exposes that. So it starts with this attacking question. Jesus asks them a question, pointing the authority to the scriptures. And they reveal the condition of their heart as they go to the loophole text instead of God's design and plan text. And Jesus says, we now know what's going on here. And then he goes, simply he starts to point them to a better way of asking questions, a better way of approaching Jesus. And that is, are you seeking fullness in God? Or are you seeking the fullness of God? Verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, and Jesus now points them back to the right text that Moses um, wrote about the, the creation story and the, the very purpose and plan for marriage. And says, and the principle that he's pointing them back to is, don't ask the question, how, what is the loophole here? Ask the question, what is God's intention and purpose for this thing? And as Christ follows, could I put it to us that the best question you can ask of anything in your life Anything in your life, way beyond just marriage, is what is God's intention and purpose for this thing? Why did God create this and how does he intend us to use it? Because you see um, Jesus' logic here in quoting this text is, God created. God's the creator. God made everything. Therefore... If God has created everything, surely He is the one who best knows how everything should work. Surely He's the one who best knows how this thing should function. Surely He's the one who knows how um, the ways, gives us the ways in which to use things in such a way that they bring life and fullness. That's His logic. Colossians speaks of everything being made through Jesus and for Jesus. If it belongs to Him, then not only does He tell us the best ways to use things, but He's telling us that we're just simply stewards of everything in our life. And as stewards, there's a greater level of call to steward it the way the one who owns it would steward it. So Jesus is laying claim, not just to marriages, but to everything. He says, whenever you approach something in life, whatever it is, don't ask the question, how can I use this thing the way I want to until I get into trouble? But rather, how best should I use this thing as a steward of it And what does God say will bring life? And this really does apply to everything. Because everything exists because God created it. Money, power, sex, privilege, strength, nature, gifting, marriage, education, friendship, opportunities, health, the words of God, everything. We should find ourselves as Christ followers going, God, I want to align myself to your ways in these things. But it's so often at the moment on one of these things that are really important to us. When our heart comes face to face with a moment where we go, this is how God would call me to steward this thing. That the condition of our heart is exposed and revealed. That moment where we go, I want to do it this way. And we learn through the scriptures that God says, no, I would call you to do it this way. That's the moment. That's the mirror where our hearts are exposed. Are they hard-hearted and legalist? Are they going to jump for the loophole? Or are they going to go, yes, God, I trust you. I'll do it that way. And again, as a pastor and, and speaking to many people about these moments, I'm, I get the privilege of being at those moments in many people's lives where there's a choice. The way I want to do it or the way God would call me to do it. And I've had many of those journeys of my own in my life. I've learned that the hard thing of this is not the logic or the theology. Yeah, God created it, obviously owns it, I'm called as a steward. That's not the hard part. Most people get that, I get that. What makes it so hard in my heart and so difficult for me is that I don't trust God's intention for me. So I don't trust God's intention. It's actually a faith and trust issue. What I've learned is that we can sometimes view, when it comes to these things, we can view God as stingy and narrow and withholding and a killjoy who wants to test us and make life hard for us to see if we truly love him and are for him. We have this sense of God that, that makes it so hard to choose the ways of God over the ways we would do things. But what's ironic is in this text, it's actually Jesus is the life-giving one on a mission towards a cross, and it is the Pharisees who are stingy and narrow and kill it's the hard-hearted legalists that are undermining the joy-giving work of Jesus because Jesus would empty himself on behalf of humanity. He would go to a cross, spill his blood, have his body broken. He would withhold nothing, even his, himself at that point on a cross. That he would fully and completely give himself to people who were fully and completely unworthy to be given to And he would hang on that cross and he would say, I am doing it so that people can be restored to the Father. And he would experience broken relationship with the Father so that we could experience restored relationship to himself. The story and the mission and the life of Jesus is anything but stingy. It is God giving the fullness of himself to people who completely and utterly don't deserve it. In complete kindness and generosity, motivated by his own love, compassion and mercy. God is anything but stingy towards humanity. He has withheld nothing, not even his own son. So this becomes a gospel issue. Have you seen, have you grasped, have you understood, have you responded to the goodness of who Jesus is and what he's done? There's a verse, that's really long, I can't unpack it, but I want to read it because it captures so powerfully the fullness of, of God's generosity towards us. So it's found in Ephesians 3, and it's a prayer that Paul prays for a church. And he wants this church to experience the fullness of God. Christ follower, in these moments where you feel like, I'm going to do it my way, because that seems like it's more full of life and joy than doing it God's way, read this verse and pray this prayer, because it will remind you where true fullness of life and joy is found. So Paul, praying for this church, says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, now to him who is able to do far more. That prayer is a full prayer. It is an abundant prayer. It's going, God, would you bless people with a knowledge of who you are? Would you give them a supernatural strength to comprehend your love in such a way that they can be grounded in it? Would you pour out their spirit into their soul so that they would encounter and know you in a tangible and real way? Would you fill them completely with the fullness of God? Would you, out of the riches of your glory, Share that and let people encounter something so much more than what we experience in this world. It's a prayer of fullness. And when we live in an understanding of the fullness and the kindness and the generosity of God, it is far easier to trust that aligning to His ways will bring fullness of joy and life. Here's the catch it won't always bring ease and comfort and convenience but it will bring and lead to life and fullness and joy. Christ followers, settle this early on in your lives. If you haven't settled this, settle it, that the ways of God are always the best ways that lead to life. You're going to come to many moments, fork in the road moments in your faith and your walk with Jesus where you're going to be tempted to go my own way and hope that there's glory and joy there or God's way, and hope that there's glory and joy and fullness there. If you settle it on easy, that that path is easy. Every time you come up and see the road, my way, God's way, it's just natural. Deep trust. Now, I do quickly want to talk to marriage, because Jesus gets there in this text. Jesus gets in this text and he speaks to marriage and he speaks to God's design for marriage. And I want to just say three quick things about marriage and then I'm going to land by speaking to all of us at the same time. And here in the text it says this, that, um, sorry, I'm having to use my Bible because I've lost my last page of my notes. Um, no, there's somewhere in this menu. Um, teaching about Divorce. And he left there, and he went to the. Re- oh, no, I'm not going to start there. Here we go. They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, "Because of your hard hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife." And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So God, he deals with their hearts, he exposes their hearts, he warns them of hard-hearted legalism. He shows what a loophole faith does to a heart, and we've gone through that, but he does spend some time going, this is God's design for marriage. So I just want to make these three points for those of us who are in the room who are married. But again, you're going to see if you're not married that this is for you too. The first thing we we learn about marriage, and this is not the full extent of the teaching that we could do on marriage. We actually have a great message um, in our origin series at the beginning of the year just on marriage. I'd encourage you to go and get there. Um, Go and listen to that. There's a fuller message there. There are resources on our website. But there are just three things that I think that we have time for and that I think are important in the times that we live from this text and God's design for marriage that I quickly want to speak to. One, that marriage is a building block of society. That marriage is a building block of society. See, right there, back of the being, God created man and woman. What he says, he immediately calls them into a marriage. And that God's design for marriage is that this isn't just an institution of society. This isn't just a creation of society. This is a creation of God, and He has intent and purpose in your marriage. That your marriage would be a part of forming stability and certainty in society and in communities. That your marriage is bigger than you. It is is meant to be a building block for the good of society. Around us, God instituted marriage as a building block. And the two big mistakes we can make about marriage is to make it everything. Oh, I idolize it. This is the thing that's going to save me. The other big mistake is say it's insignificant and it's nothing. And God would say, no, it's incredibly important. But what I would say to married people is your marriage is not your own. Your marriage is not your own. God never intended marriage to be about you. God intended your marriage to be about society and community and others around you and that there should be space for singles and others within your marriage. Your marriage is not your own and is not about you. We see that from the beginning. God created man and woman. Therefore, they get married. Covenantal love and a supernatural work of God is the second thing. That your marriage is not just based on, on legal commitment you made to each other or a commitment that you made before people. It is made on a covenantal love commitment that you made to each other. And I feel so often I just need to remind marriages of this reality. That you didn't, when you stood and made your vows before God, you didn't make a promise to feel loving towards each other. You made a promise to be loving towards each other, no matter what the future holds. That's covenantal love, that you would would commit to each other no matter what happens in your lives forever, and that you would choose to be loving, and that that marriage, your marriage would reflect the love that Christ has for the church, that it would be a safe space to get things wrong, that it would be a place where you receive grace, mercy, and kindness when it's undeserved. So many marriages are struggling, not because of what's happened, but because of what initially started to happen in your hearts. There was a hardness and a legalism. You started holding each other to standards rather than operating with each other in covenantal love. I will meet you with grace. I will meet you with kindness. I will meet you with mercy, whether you deserve it or not. That's a safe marriage. And that's a marriage that reflects something of Christ with His church. And it's deeply spiritual. I love this moment where Jesus goes, what God has joined together, let no man, not Moses, not a process, not a certificate of divorce, separate. See what he's doing there? He's saying, you're claiming to Moses' little side thing there. I'm claiming to what God has instituted and created. And in a marriage, what happens is God takes two different people, separate people, and it's a deeply spiritual act, and makes them one. He's unified them in a deeply spiritual, real, and significant way. One, where there was two. So don't let any man separate them, Jesus says. And he goes on to say something with the disciples that's quite hard. He says this. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I love how Jesus moves this moment out of the public crowd and into a room with his disciples. And in some ways, we've done that this morning because I know I've walked many journeys, many more journeys than I ever thought I would walk in my time as a pastor with people getting divorced. And I know the complexity and I know the pain and I know the sadness and I know what it is when one wants to remain married and the other doesn't or when two don't want to remain married or there's deep pain, there's deep hurt. And I've seen marriages where the, the, the worst of the worst of the worst things have happened in those marriages. But the gospel truth of covenantal love was applied and forgiveness and mercy and the power of God stepped in and those marriages are fine, they're thriving, they're better than they ever were. I've also seen marriages where there were really insignificant moments of hard-heartedness and bitterness towards each other for, for really small things. And because the grace of God wasn't the foundation of that marriage, it didn't stand a chance. And what Jesus is saying here he's pointing to the strength of marriage and what God has done. But Jesus in other parts of the Bible would allow for divorce. He would speak to legitimate reasons for divorce to take place. So I'm not standing here saying that if you're divorced and remarried that you're committed adultery. I think Jesus is say, not saying that either. I think what he's saying is if you take your vows and your, your commitment to each other flippantly and just separate on grounds that are not gospel, gospel true and not legitimate, then yes, you are dishonoring that marriage vow and the work that God has done in bringing two to one. And this is a deeply complex topic, so we've pushed it away onto a resource on our website and if you're grappling with this, I'd love for you to go and get the fullness of that there because I can't cover the fullness of it in this message. But the point that Jesus is making is that God intended marriage to be forever. And the starting point for any struggling marriage in this, two practical things and then I'm done. One, open up your marriage to people. Too many times I've seen a marriage struggle for years and then you go, What are you struggling with? And the person goes, this thing, my husband, he's really like annoying on this and this and this. And then Laura goes, oh yeah, mine too. And they're like, what? That's normal. Or newly marrieds being like, flip, (laughs) I had one recently, flip, I'm feeling a bit homesick. Like I'm married to this dude, I love this dude, but man, I I had a great life at home and I'm a bit homesick. I'm like, yeah, I know a bunch of other people who experienced the exact same thing in year one of marriage. It's, It's okay. Just opening up your marriage can diffuse so much of the fear and concern and anxiety. I promise you, whatever you're going through, you're not alone. Other people have experienced it too. And the second thing for any struggling marriage, Jesus is simply saying that the starting point is not the loophole. The starting point is your vows and your commitment and God's intention and purposes for marriage. Start there, and you can work 99% of the problems out. And every once in a while, there is a legitimate reason for a marriage to end. For the rest of us, I think the main part of this message is on legalism and hard-heartedness. And what Jesus would call us to in hard-heartedness might be surprising. Because you might go, Jesus would say, stop being hard-hearted. Stop being cold and calloused. Stop trying to obey the law. Stop doing these things. You're falling short, just stop it. You think that would be Jesus' invitation to us to deal with our hard-heartedness. Sometimes you think with a hard something that's hard, you just got to crack it. You just got to smash it. So Jesus is just going to smash our hard hearts. He's just going to bring the conviction, the intensity, and smash our hearts. That's not what Jesus does with hard hearts. Jesus melts hard hearts in the kindness of the gospel. He invites you into a graceful relationship where he says. You can't do it. Lay down the, your, your attempts at self righteousness. Lay down your attempts at fulfilling the law. Lay down your attempts at managing your reputation. <laughs> I know the fullness of your failures. Your reputation is not worth the effort that you're putting into trying to polish it up. It ain't going to be polished up by you. And he goes, Come to me. I have done what needs to be done. And in me, you can be fully known, all your stuff, and you can be fully loved. And when a legalist like myself gets this at the age of 16, it causes rest in my heart. It causes rest in anyone's heart who understands the goodness of the gospel and the invitation to Jesus. I want to read a a verse. I don't have it with me. If you can just pop it up. It's a verse from Matthew. This is the invitation to anyone who resonates with a bit of hardness in your heart and a bit of legalism. This is the invitation to you this morning. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Could the band join me up here please? Surrender to the finished work of Jesus and let the fullness of his life and his spirit and his presence and his grace and his mercy full your soul and you will find yourself transformed. Your obedience will be full of joy and love and affection for God and all he's done in your life. I'm going to pray a prayer, a very simple prayer for all of us here in the venue and all of us at home. For some of you, this might be the first time you pray a prayer of surrender to God, and for some of us, it's going to be that prayer of God. I can see it. I can see the legalism rising up in my heart again. I can see the lack of trust in you and the belief that you are for me and not against me. And if you find yourself in that prayer, just pray along with me. Just pray, yes, in your hearts to to this prayer, Father. We we we've, we've been we've stood before a mirror that you've put up on our hearts this morning. That. They would say that there is potential for hardness of heart and legalism and and a sense of looking for the loopholes in our faith where we can have what we want but not get into trouble. And it is so shallow. God, when our hearts are there, we're living in the shallow end of what you offer, the shallow end of what it means to be a Christ follower, shallow end of what it means to be a human. So, Father, we freshly come to you this morning, some of us for the first time, some of us for the hundredth time. God, we need you. We want to rest in you. We want to experience your grace and your mercy and your kindness towards you. Father, we repent. We lay down. We change our minds about our ability to earn good standing before you. We change our minds about being able to do things in such a way that they please you in and of themselves. And we come to you in your finished work. And we pray, God, that you would pour out in this moment your spirit freshly upon us, that we would experience your presence in our hearts and our our souls, that you would connect with us in such a way that, that we would know that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are chosen, that we are your children, and that there is deep rest, that striving has ended, that we are home in you. Would that settle into our hearts? Would that settle into our souls? Father, would it liberate us to own our stuff? Would we be able to be, would we freely be able to speak about our failures and our shortcomings with community and people around us because we're not managing reputation, but we're resting in you. God, would you liberate us into joy and fullness as a community as we live in the reality and the truth of your gospel and finished work. Amen.